If we want to list every way Spreaker can help podcast publishers, well, we need a podcast of our own. Whether you're in charge of long-running series with extensive backlogs or countless limited series, you can organize and monetize your entire catalog with Spreaker. With Spreaker's customizable publisher plan, you can add collaborators, analyze extensive listener analytics, and even share exclusive content through custom RSS feeds. And that's just for starters. Head to Spreaker.com to learn more. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Good morning, America. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program? 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Today is our one-year anniversary. We've been doing this program for a year. We might be able to get to that later, but we've got to get to Kamala Harris right now. I I, I want to begin, my best understanding I have is it's Kamala, not Kamala um, not, not Kamala, uh, it, it's Kamala Harris. And I want to, it, it, I, some of you will get annoyed with me, actually. Uh, believe it or not, uh, there are people who want to get annoyed about th- playing it straight. And I actually do want to play it straight. I, I want to give you, uh, the background and I want to, to, um, I, I let me just let, let me let me play this straight for you. I'll get into my opinion uh, of Kamala Harris uh, here in a little bit, but let me just play this straight. Um, she is uh, part Asian American. She is part African American. Uh, she is her uh, parents are immigrants to this country. We now have three of the four candidates uh, for the major parties are children of immigrants which speaks very highly of this country. Mike Pence, Donald Trump, and Kamala Harris, they have parents who are uh, not from this country, who moved to this country, who wanted to be in this country, and who made success in this country. And their children uh, are now the president, the vice president, and the vice presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, who is a current United States senator from California. All of us should look at this and be mindful of what an awesome country we have, that the children of immigrants can come to this country, can, can be in this country, born in this country, and become uh, the leader of the free world. She, Kamala Harris, has an impressive background. Uh, she went to Howard University and the University of California. She went to law school. She became the district attorney in Alameda County. She was recruited by the San Francisco district attorney's office. She became the city attorney in San Francisco. She became the district attorney in San Francisco. She became the attorney general in California, then the United States senator from California. And now she is the vice presidential nominee for the Democrats. Uh, She ran for president not very successfully. Uh, Her presidential campaign, frankly, was criticized uh, for its rudderlessness. Her campaign uh, paid too much attention to wokeness and what the Twitter mobs were saying. And she uh, was criticized, had a devastating exchange with Tulsi Gabbard. After having had a devastating exchange where she herself drew blood on Joe Biden, she scored points against Joe Biden. But that ultimately hurt her on the campaign trail, ironically enough. Her high point came shortly after drawing blood on Joe Biden in the primary debates over uh, racial integration and busing. 
but then Tulsi Gabbard went after her for her record as attorney general for being too tough on crime, essentially throwing young black men in jail uh, while ignoring the crimes of those who could advance her political career. Harris really didn't have a response for it and really took a who does this woman think she is coming after me approach on television afterwards. Uh, it was very unbecoming a presidential candidate. She didn't really have a sense of humility. And uh, ultimately, she began to decline. She dropped out on December 3rd, 2019 before Iowa. She she was actually out of the race before Iowa. She did not hang on. And that's actually very interesting for Joe Biden to pick her considering she she never even made it to the 2020 uh, primary. She she dropped out before. She ran out of money. And uh, then she, in 20, uh, March of 2020, decided to endorse Joe Biden. She waited for several months to endorse Biden. Um, that's who Kamala Harris is. Uh, th- that, that is the, the, the no-spin, matter-of-fact uh, version of who Kamala Harris is. She is an aggressive, ambitious politician, now, there are, there's a memo circulating from left-wing groups that you're not allowed to use ambition when it comes to Kamala Harris because it's sexist. But no, she actually is an ambitious politician, objectively so. Uh, she has been able to uh, ride a progressive wave across the nation over time. While Attorney General in California, though, she very stridently defended the death penalty in California because she needed a a tough-on-crime demeanor at the time in the polls in California uh, in order to advance her career. Once she advanced her career to the next stage, as the political winds have changed, Kamala Harris actually does have an objectively a reputation of changing with the winds. In fact, that got her in trouble on the campaign trail and ultimately was one of the things that cost her her, uh, her presidential campaign was in a New York Times analysis of her campaign, they staffers complained that her campaign was too focused on what Twitter was saying and not enough on what the real world was saying. And that has seemed to be part of her problem. Now, uh, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm trying to play this straight. That is, those are the facts. Let me give you my analysis and then I'll give you my opinion. Uh, The analysis of why Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris is Joe Biden needed to have a black female running mate. He had been very upfront about he wanted diversity. Uh, He wanted someone there is, whether you agree with it or not, there is a prevailing consensus among the media talking heads, among the opinion, opinion prognosticators of the day that Donald Trump has mobilized and is backed by a fringish white nationalist element and that many of the president's core supporters have a racist twitch to them and that the president himself does. And by having a black female, the president and his supporters are not going to help themselves. They're not going to be able to help themselves. They're going to expose who they are to everyone else, and people are going to find it distasteful. On top of that, Joe Biden's got two other issues he's got to deal with. One, he's got to find someone who people on the left and among Democrats will view as competent and stable. And Kamala Harris does have a foot in the establishment camp of the Democratic Party as much as she has a foot in the progressive camp. Now, as an aside, you're going to see people at Fox and elsewhere. We're already seeing news articles coming out of Fox uh, that the left hates Kamala Harris. They're deeply disaffected. The Bernie Sanders supporters are, are mad. Don't believe that, please. I, I Listen, I, I realize we're in we're in tribal political season and you've got MSNBC for the left and Fox for the right. 
and both um, playing with their base, toying with them, reporting stuff they want to hear. One of the things people on the right want to hear is that uh, Biden and Harris are going to turn off the left. They're going to suppress the left. They're going to disaffect the left and the left isn't going to show up. That's not really true. And I'm already seeing stories to that effect. And don't believe those stories, please. Just put them out of your mind. It's not really true. Uh, The left so passionately hates Donald Trump. Uh, You could put David Duke in as the Democratic Party candidate, and they would decide, well, we can deal with him after we deal with Trump. The left hates Donald Trump that much. They want him gone. It doesn't matter who Joe Biden's nominee is, but... Biden also has to reassure others beyond the progressive base. He needs someone with a foot in the progressive camp, but he needs someone with a foot in the establishment camp because everyone kind of knows that Biden, if he even makes it through his first term, and I don't mean that disparagingly, the man's just about 80 years old and he has a history of health problems, but he's already signaled he's not going to run again. So he also had to find someone who could spend four years as vice president, building themselves up to run for president, giving the Democrats a fresh face. And one of the things he did not want to do is is tie himself to the Bernie Sanders camp. And he did not want to tie his party to the Bernie Sanders camp, nor to Elizabeth Warren. New England white liberal from Massachusetts and New England white liberal from Vermont isn't the future of the Democratic Party that Joe Biden or Barack Obama wants. For all of Kamala Harris's faults, and I think she has many, she's 55 years old, she's from California, the most populous state in the nation. It gives an immediate anchor to the campaign in California, not that they had to worry about it because they're going to vote Democrat anyway, but she can build from there off the base and move forward to uh, the rest of the country. And she is black. So she will connect with black voters superficially at that level, uh, just by virtue of of that level of diversity. But also, uh, she has a record in California being tough on crime. And this is what I find most interesting here, and I think it's gone underreported. And I think you have to add this to the analysis. When you look at the slate of speakers speaking at the Democratic Convention, you do not find the progressive activists calling for defunding the police. You do not call for the progressive activists wanting fundamental change. In fact, what you get are Democrats who support law and order. And now you've got as the vice presidential nominee for the Democrats, someone who is notorious for being law and order and rounding up young black men and throwing them in jail. Ironically, at a time the president's been taking a very law and order pitch, the Democrats clearly must have internal polling that shows this is a problem for them. And they've got someone whose record on law and order can't really be attacked because you've got the Tulsi Gabbard clip out there uh, that, that Kamala Harris was too tough on people. Interestingly enough, this allows a pivot back to Donald Trump towards criminal justice reform, and that's going to ignite sparks on the right. If Donald Trump wants to segment himself against Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, the best way to do it is actually criminal justice reform, pivoting away from what Kamala Harris did in California. But then that fractures the right. So in that way, it's actually a a smart chess move by the Biden campaign to bring Kamala Harris. It, It negates all of the defund the police stuff. Now, listen, the right's going to attack Kamala Harris for tweeting out uh, that she supported, she wanted people to raise money for the movement in, in Minnesota that was paying bail for the street protesters and rioters who were burning stuff down in Minnesota. They'll point to that. They'll point to a record saying uh, she wanted to decriminalize crossing the border and all that. And the Biden campaign will point to her law and order record. She defended the death penalty in California. 
There's a difference between rhetoric and actual policies advocated while in office. And the fact of the matter is she has very tough law and order policies from when she was attorney general in California and that the left and the Democrats will seek to neutralize. So in that sense, it's a smart play for the Democrats. It gives them a fresh face, uh, 55 years old, frankly, younger than most of the people in the party who are running. She's not white. She is progressive. But she had a law and order track record in California. This is what they needed to be able to differentiate themselves while also checking the box of diverse vice presidential pick. That's why Kamala Harris is picked. She won't rock the boat with the establishment. She won't rock the vote with progressives. The problem they're going to have, though, are independent voters who don't like Donald Trump, but they don't like Kamala Harris. Because one of the most interesting aspects of the polling out there right now is that voters believe that Joe Biden is picking the future president. A significant portion of voters out there right now believe Joe Biden may not even make it through his first term, and so whoever his, whoever his vice presidential pick is is going to be president. She actually, you know, vice presidential picks are normally people you pick to lock down the base. Like Mike Pence was picked to help with evangelical conservatives. No doubt about it. The Trump campaign was very, very, very upfront about it. The Biden pick was a little more complicated because they really did need to pick someone who could step into the president's shoes. But that's also his problem because a lot of center-right independent voters who loathe Donald Trump deeply despise Kamala Harris. And for that, you got to stick around so I can explain it to you. Let me get into the problems, if you will, uh, for why center-right people who don't like Donald Trump um, may actually wind up voting for him because of Kamala Harris. Uh, listen, I realize there there is this view of people on the left and in the media that uh, there are so many people, Lincoln Project types, who hate Donald Trump and they're going to go vote for, for Joe Biden. In fact, you see some of the Lincoln Project people come out and support Kamala Harris. If you're a conservative, you, you can't. And what this pick may do is keep people home. They, they may hate the president so much they're not going to go vote for him. The problem with the Kamala Harris pick, if you're on the right, is that it's not just that she is progressive. She's a progressive opportunist. Um, I, I mean, this is this is let me just give you some of the Politico spin here. Uh, according to Politico, Harris, this is a direct quote, deathly hops between Democratic Party shifting tectonic plates. Uh, another way to say this is she's a rank opportunist. I mean, for all the people who say Donald Trump is, is an ambitious, power-hungry opportunist, that's Kamala Harris. She is the Democrats' Donald Trump. And they would put her in as president. And 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 let, let's be very clear here, and this will enrage people on the left, but you need to understand how people on the right, center-right people like me who don't really care for the president, but uh, you just, just so you, you understand all of this, Kamala Harris is a progressive opportunist. When she wanted to be attorney general in California, she aggressively began locking up uh, young black men doing drugs in San Francisco to prove that a San Francisco liberal could be tough on crime. When she became attorney general in California and wanted to shift to become a uh, candidate for the United States Senate, she began aggressively harassing pro-lifers in California uh, and, and standing up for Planned Parenthood while also being tough on crime. 
to placate everyone on the on uh, the, the the center left who was worried she would be just too wackadoo when she got to Washington D.C. The moment she gets to Washington D.C., she becomes one of the most liberal members of the United States Senate. In fact, a number of scorecards out there have her as more liberal than Bernie Sanders on some issues and Elizabeth Warren on almost every issue. Uh, many of the same young black men that she locked up in prison as Attorney General, she began claiming needed to come out of jail when she was U.S. Senator. She used their arrests to advance herself in politics and then denounced that they had ever been arrested and thrown in jail when she was the one who did it. She's never met a progressive policy position that she wouldn't embrace if it would advance her career. She also, to get ahead and get uh, notoriety on the left as a true believer, was willing to blackball people who were too Christian for her to be on the uh, judiciary. In fact, there were more than one candidate, one in particular, Amy Coney Barrett, but others as well, where she lambasted them for being uh, too committed to their faith. Never mind that there is a prohibition on a religion test in the Constitution for appointments. She flat out broke that constitutional provision to say that these people were too faithful to their Catholic convictions. And it was always Catholics. Uh, She was very hostile uh, towards the Little Sisters of the Poor. She advocated uh, pursuing Little Sisters of the Poor to force them to perform abortions. She, or, or to pay for the uh, performing abortions. She is very, very much a progressive opportunist. And for everyone who says Donald Trump is, is an authoritarian and mobilizes terrible sentiment, uh, you know, she's not even a leader. This is probably the most significant uh, issue with her. She's not a, um, she, she is not even a leader. Kamala Harris is easily led by the woke mob. Go back to her presidential campaign. Kamala Harris dropped out of the campaign. She never even made it to Iowa. And in the New York Times analysis, by the way, the New York Times now calling her a pragmatist. The New York Times analysis is that her campaign was too focused on what Twitter said and the woke mobs on Twitter. And wherever they went, she went in that direction. This is a woman who went on stage to a press conference and said this. I believe them and I, I respect um, them being able to tell their story and having the courage to do it. Do you believe that the vice president should enter this race? Oh, I, he's going to have to make that decision for himself. I wouldn't tell him what to do. He's going to have to, that's, does she, do you believe the accusers? Do you believe Joe Biden's accusers? Women accuse Joe Biden of sexual assault and Kamala Harris says she believed them. She believed them. And she said that to advance herself at Joe Biden's expense. And now she's willing to say she never really believed them. And, you know, here's the thing. The press is never going to hold her accountable on this. Some reporter somewhere will give her a softball interview wherein they're allow, they allow her to reverse her position without ever any push or follow-up on it so that she can then move on. And say, well, you know, I, I heard more of their story and now, no, it doesn't sound credible. Or or I know Joe Biden. Or even going so far as to say, well, you know, you, you have to take positions on the campaign trail, unfortunately, uh, that you regret taking later. And move on. This is a woman who is willing to use sexual assault allegations against Joe Biden to advance her career. And then to hell with the victims once that would advance her career. The only two things that Kamala Harris has been consistent on in her entire career are a deep hostility towards the Second Amendment and a deep hostility to the pro-life Christian community. That's it. So for a lot of people on the center right 
who are thinking, you know, I could go with Joe Biden. They see someone like Kamala Harris and they say, wait a second, she's a progressive alternative to Donald Trump. I don't think so. At least for all of Donald Trump's tendencies, Donald Trump tends more or less to surround himself with conservatives and put good conservatives on the bench who then limit the size and, and, and authority of, of the federal government's power. Kamala Harris wants expansive federal power, and she has often used that to round people up and throw them in jail. So that's why conservative center-right coalition people who may have voted for Joe Biden will say, I may have to sit on the sidelines with this one now and, and won't go for him. She's a problematic candidate. I mean, people like me who... I don't really care for the president. You all know it. I've given money to his campaign. I've I've told him I would vote for him. There are days I get up and think, do I really even want, maybe I'll just go drink and fish on election day. This makes me want to get my absentee ballot and go in and vote for him today. I've got to tell you, I am actually really impressed with Andrew Clyde's showing last night. Andrew Clyde uh, upset Matt Gertler. Uh, Everyone, myself included, thought Gertler was going to win. And Andrew Clyde bested him 56-43 in that uh, ninth congressional district race to replace Doug Collins. Uh, Clyde will be the Republican uh, congressman. Uh, the Democrat has no shot the way that district was was drawn. Now, I, I back Gertler, full disclosure there. Uh, I like no Matt. Uh, there was a real organized effort uh, between the establishment and, frankly, some conservatives to to take out Gertler, and it worked. Um, uh, Clyde will be good. Jo- uh, Jody Heiss, you know, the congressman, a great conservative, one of the leaders of the um, one of the leaders of the House Freedom Caucus backed Andrew Clyde. Uh, this is actually a big win for David Ralston and Nathan Deal, both of whom uh, despised Matt Gertler and worked very, very hard to stop him. Uh, they'll get Andrew Clyde out of this. But Clyde will be good. Don't get me wrong; he'll be a good conservative. Um, the other uh, big race is Marjorie Taylor Greene versus John Cowan. Uh, I stayed out of the race. Uh, I, I I told you guys my concerns. The, the Green Camp really wanted me to endorse them, and I just I, I'm wasn't comfortable doing it. Still not comfortable. Uh, she won. Uh, Cowan it was rather ran a rather anemic race, and frankly, I I think that they the, the Cowan campaign mistook uh, enthusiasm and um, motivation. All of the people who ran in that race, not named Marjorie Taylor Greene, endorsed John Cowan in the runoff. And it wasn't enough. They presumed, I heard this from so many people, I I genuinely heard this from Republican consultants uh, from national to local that that Greene had a ceiling. There was no way she could get above that ceiling uh, and and that she was toast. And they stayed out of the race. They didn't get vocal. They, they didn't want to disrupt the base. Um, many of them behind the scenes uh, seethe at the base. And they wanted nothing to do with her race. And they didn't speak up. And she won. Because activist enthusiasm always, in every case, overcomes uh, establishment polite contempt. And... Marjorie Green may have establishment polite contempt. Uh, they'll pat her on the head and, and tell her good job uh, and privately talk bad about her behind her back. Uh, but uh, publicly, they, they won't they won't really do anything. Meanwhile, the activists loved her. She she fired up the activists. I, I, I told you what was going to happen. And, and my concern with the race and why I would have voted John Cowan 
And that is, I, I believe she'll become a political distraction for the Republicans. And uh, as much as I am 100% committed to the fact she'll vote the right way and she'll be a solid conservative, uh, I believe that she will also be one of those those Republicans who cause other Republicans uh, to have to deal with the media on a daily basis of, did you hear what she said and what do you think? In a way, the media never does this with Democrats. And let's be honest, the media never does this with Democrats. Uh, but they they do it regularly with Republicans, and it becomes a distraction for Republicans, uh, and re- Republicans have to spend resources to try to neutralize that stuff. Well, uh, they will now with Marjorie Taylor Green. We saw this happen last night. By 10 p.m., there were already more than a dozen news stories across the country that a QAnon supporter was headed to Congress. Now, what is QAnon? For those of you who don't know, and, and actually, the data suggests not only a lot of you do, but you believe it, and I'm sorry y'all are dumb. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm deeply insulting to those of you who have bought into the QAnon conspiracy stuff. You're stupid people, uh, who want to be led like sheep. Um, and, and I got no use for you. And the reason is because QAnon was started on 4chan by a group of hucksters and pranksters who spilled it out into the, the rest of the universe of people who have Gnostic knowledge. This is my problem with QAnon and with you people who have bought it because they, they hang themselves around Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a, a, a church that actually played a QAnon video recently up north somewhere uh you know the the apostle john spent a lot of time in scripture as did uh jesus's brother jude denouncing gnosticism gnosticism is this idea that if you just follow along uh you, there is some secret knowledge that will reveal to you the way the world actually works and those of you who support QAnon uh, have bought into gnosticism and defiance of scripture and they cloak themselves in scripture and and rhetoric related to jesus and you buy it because it sounds very christian and and it is sweeping through churches across this country. And if you're a pastor listening right now, you should be very concerned that members of your congregation are buying in Christocentric Gnosticism that the Apostle John specifically warned you to preach against and reject, and you're not doing it, and your church is succumbing to it. QAnon is a modern Christocentric Gnosticism. It is like uh, the, the various um, Manichaean... Um, Gnosticisms that consumed the early church and broke apart congregations that John and Jude and, and Peter and James all had to condemn and write against. In fact, if you read Eusebius's history of the early Christian church, what you find is that when John died in 100 AD, uh, the church immediately had to shift gears from proclaiming the truth of Christ to denouncing the heretics, chief among them, the Gnostics, who believed that they could give you a secret end to Jesus. Uh, Coming to Jesus is actually very, very simple. You believe, you proclaim him Lord and Savior, and you repent and be baptized. That's it. You accept Jesus Christ, you repent, and you be baptized, and you're saved, and you get eternal life. What QAnon would have you believe is that it is some sort of uh, Christian Gnosticism that reveals to you the way the government works, that there really is this deep state, that Donald Trump is part of this, this plot to round up and expose the deep state, and that they will be arrested. And time and time and time and time and time again, the, the QAnon conspiracies fall apart and so they twist them ever so slightly to gain kernels of truth out of them, which is what Gnostics do. I mean, you people who believe QAnon are like right-wing Scientologists. 
I, I cannot express my utter contempt for QAnon, and I would much prefer you not listen to this program if you're a QAnon uh, person, because one, I, I would like to raise the IQ of my listeners, and if you buy into QAnon, I'm sorry, I, I want nothing to do with you people. You're a menace to society. You really are. You're a menace to yourself because you bought into a Christian Gnosticism that ultimately descends into heresy and lets you believe wackadoo conspiracy theories about the government. And the way the world works, that's not even true, but is premised on kernels of truth so that you ignore the lies and grab hold of that kernel of truth and and and, and move forward with it. And you are a menace to society, and it, ultimately we're going to see violence come out of this. You really do have these QAnon people who believe that Donald Trump is exposing the deep state, and they're all going to be rounded up and dropped out of helicopters or, or, or thrown in jail or some such, when what's happening? The president of the United States with his supporters uh, let loose on this stuff is being distracted by governance. Yes, if I sound annoyed by QAnon, I really am. On a daily basis now, I, I, I get people who ask me about parts of it, and there are always kernels of truth, and you go down the rabbit hole, and it is the most bizarre thing, and it is a menace to your own psychology when you embrace conspiracy theories. And do you know why people embrace conspiracy theories? There, there are three reasons people embrace conspiracy theories. Number one, you are committed to the fact that you are smarter than everyone else, so there's a level of pride that comes before your fall. Uh, there's another reason. You believe that society itself is way more complex than it actually is. And in fact, it's a bunch of stupid people out there making stupid decisions. And that's the best way to understand society is society is filled with stupid people like you who believe these conspiracy theories. And the third reason is because you yourself suck at life and have failed and you can't accept that you yourself have failed or your team has failed or your tribe has failed. And so you've got to blame other people or some deep, dark conspiracy as opposed to accepting blame yourself. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll lower my blood pressure now. This QAnon stuff is bad news for the GOP. And the reason it is bad news for the GOP is because it has pulled you out of reality. It has pulled you out of the truth and made you believe a false truth. And every false truth, just like Satan quoting scripture to Jesus in the wilderness, every false truth is premised on a nugget of truth that is then twisted and perverted. And you believe it because you hold on to the nugget of truth on which the foundation, which the lies are built. Every lie is actually built on a foundation of truth. Every lie to be credible is actually built on this. This is why you can see Democrats go out and, and, and make all sorts of outrageous claims about Donald Trump, but they hang on to a kernel of truth. QAnon is no different. And I don't think you can battle crazy with crazy. I don't think you can battle democratic lies with Republican lies. I don't think you can battle democratic contempt for the individual with a conspiracy premised on a deep state where, you know, there are people in government who absolutely do hate Donald Trump. There are embedded careerists who came from the Obama administration who inside government have tried to disrupt this administration. We saw this with impeachment. That is very true. But from there to spring forth an entire body of lies called QAnon, that there this is an entire elaborate behind-the-scenes conspiracy. Do you know why it's not a behind-the-scenes elaborate conspiracy? Because people are stupid and nobody can keep a secret that long. You don't want to go down this road, and too many of you are. And, and again, I, I mean this very seriously to pastors. You got people in your church who have bought into this form of Gnosticism, and it is a form of Gnosticism. People, the apostles, John, who spent uh, copious words writing about Gnosticism and the perversion of truth and, and the premise of lies and, and the reshaping of Christianity around these heresies, he would recognize QAnon. He would recognize it, and he would call it out. 
because it's Gnosticism. It is premised on if you pay attention to certain things, you can derive a secret knowledge that that the rest of society doesn't understand and doesn't recognize, and it puts you in a morally smug, morally superior position where you think you can explain things in a way other people can, and you can see the truth of the world in ways other people can't, and pride comes before the fall. Satan can quote scripture as well, and everybody can pervert truth to claim that they have a better truth, but the only real truth out there is Jesus Christ, and if you premise yourself on him, then you've got to reject this other Gnostic nonsense because it's not really truth. It's a lie that is built on top of a truth. And pastors, you better be weary of your congregation because there are more and more surveys out there that show people in churches are buying into this stuff because when you follow, and by the way, I follow a bunch of QAnon accounts just to see, you would be amazed how much their rhetoric echoes Christianity, how how much of it they premise on a Judeo-Christian worldview. And they all think that they, they have some sort of inside track on knowledge. It's like the people who are convinced that they, they got the fortune cookie with the winning lottery ticket. And ultimately, it's going to fall apart. There was actually a great article I saw very recently on a number of people who have, um, they're being burned down on it because they totally bought into it. They went hook, line, and sinker on it. And, and none of the predictions are actually coming true. And they're having to twist them every so slightly to say they really are true when they're really not true. Are there bad things that go on behind the scenes? Absolutely. Yes, there are. Are, are. Is there human trafficking going on in this country? Absolutely. And it needs to be shut down. Is the media, I think, to some degree covering for Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think that there are members of the media who risk being exposed. And uh, they, they, they have totally noticed how they, they, they play down all the Jeffrey Epstein stuff. Is it all some sort of interconnected elaborate plot? No, it's really not. And not only are you distracting yourself from the real truth, you're actually distracting yourself from the issues that matter that can advance Donald Trump in November. Uh, And a lot of these QAnon people don't even realize they're going to cost him the election in November because they've just gone so far out there. Now, that takes me completely away from where I was with Marjorie Taylor Greene. The media is attacking her for being fully embracing QAnon. But remember, they attacked the the girl in, in Colorado for the same thing. Uh, they're attacking Marjorie Taylor Greene for a series of statements and, and positions she's taken and statements she's made. But notice, here's the thing. Bottom line, she's going to be a reliable conservative vote in Congress. And what the media is going to do now is they're going to take her positions and statements and tie that into conservatism as a whole and say, well, conservatism has, has all descended into QAnon conspiracy. That's the problem with Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is the media will use her to paint everyone else with a broad brush. But ultimately, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene just won a race for Congress against an entire establishment that was lined up against her. Uh, so give her some credit for actually knowing what she's doing out there and giving give her some credit for knowing how to connect with the base. Now, there are other races out there as well. We'll get into those races. Uh, And look, I'm sorry to lose my temper on this QAnon stuff. Y'all, I've started dealing with this on a regular basis with friends of mine who have totally gone down this rabbit hole. And I am perplexed at how smart people can be led down the rabbit hole with a a trail of, of, of truthful breadcrumbs that get you to fall into lies. It's sad to see. It's like watching someone develop an addiction to drugs over time who was a stable member of society and has descended into the rabbit hole. And ultimately what it does is it breeds despondency too. If Donald Trump loses in November, a lot of the people who embrace QAnon are going to believe not that Donald Trump should have done things differently, 
but that the deep state ultimately got him, and they will withdraw completely from politics and think, why bother? Why keep up the fight? The deck is stacked against us, and that's not healthy either, and I can see that coming already. People sometimes question uh, whether or not their vote matters. I want to put in perspective an election uh, to remind you just how much your vote actually does matter. Fulton County, Georgia, had a runoff. That is the Atlanta area. Fulton County, Georgia, had a runoff for district attorney. Now, for those of you listening outside of Georgia or, or you're out, so far outside the metro Atlanta area, you really don't care about it. Uh, Fulton County is a very weirdly shaped county uh, that essentially combined a couple of counties to form this this bizarre shape. Uh, it's like a, three triangles connected together, one one kind of big triangle in the middle, two smaller ones up at the top and the bottom, combined counties, the county of Milton and, and others, in, into forming Fulton County. So on the north end of Fulton County, you've got Alpharetta and you've got Roswell, you got Sandy Springs in there. Then you've got Atlanta proper. And uh, then on the south end of Atlanta, you've got, what is it, South Fulton, I believe, is the latest city down there. You've got another of, of kind of incorporated cities in the Atlanta area. Uh, it is, it's a just a bizarrely shaped county. You got East Point in there, College Park in there, what Union City, Fairburn, um, those in there. And in any event, there are, in all of that area, there are 780,000 780, registered voters who could vote. 54,000 of them showed up to vote for a new DA. 54,000. Now, let's be clear here. Uh, let's be clear. A lot of people were just so put off. Uh, they didn't want to go vote, and not voting is as much a vote as voting. But also, uh, Paul Howard is out. Paul Howard will be done. Now, for those of you who have no idea what's going on here, I need to set the table for you. Uh, Richard Brooks, you know the name Richard Brooks, I'm sure. Richard Brooks was killed in a Wendy's parking lot by a police officer. He was shot. Richard Brooks uh, passed out drunk uh, in a Wendy's parking lot. He was already on probation, I believe, um, had a criminal record. He's drunk. They pull him over very politely. Uh, the man is so super intoxicated. They have a hard time with him. And for 30, 40 minutes, everything is peaceful. And they inform him that they're going to have to take him in. And when they begin to put the handcuffs on Richard Brooks, something happens. Uh, the man goes nuts. And he begins to fight the police officers, knocks one of them down, causes him a concussion, grabs the, um, grabs the guy's taser and runs, and then turns around to fire the taser at the police officer. The taser has multiple shots. The police officer then pulls his gun and shoots Rashad Brooks and Rashad Brooks bleeds out in the parking lot and dies. It's all caught on film. The police officer notes that he he didn't know how many shots the multiple taser shots have been fired the police officer in the chaos all of this happened in less than a minute wasn't sure how many shots were left in the taser if, if Richard Brooks had managed to taser the police officer he could have gotten the police officer's gun 
Rashard Brooks, sadly, it's a tragedy. He died, but the cops are not on the wrong here. But nonetheless, Paul Howard was in a fight for his life. Paul Howard, the district attorney, is under investigation by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. One of the things he's been investigated for is something he's now paid fines related to, which is he set up a nonprofit, didn't tell people he was in charge of the nonprofit, convinced the city of Atlanta to fund the nonprofit, and then paid himself an exorbitant salary from the nonprofit without doing a whole lot of work with the nonprofit. He's being investigated for that criminally. He's been fined by the State Ethics Commission. And so Fannie Willis, who worked for him as a, a, an assistant district attorney in Fulton County, ran against him, came in first in the runoff. And so Paul Howard had to begin a campaign to convince the black community that he was actually on their side after years of, of really siding with, I mean, if we wanted to put racial terms in it, uh, siding with the white business community in Atlanta for, for crime and justice, and this was used against him, that he was overbearing among poor people in Atlanta. And that was something used against him. So Paul Howard began during the Atlanta riots after George Floyd arresting and charging police officers with crimes when, for example, uh, there were six police officers who were fired because they smashed out the window of a vehicle and tasered the two people in it when they were commanding the people inside, college students, to stop, pull over, park their car. They wouldn't. They tried to drive off. They smashed the window and tasered them. Well, they were all fired, and two of them were criminally charged by um, by the Fulton County DA, Paul Howard, and the police essentially went on a slowdown. And then you get to the Rashard Brooks thing, and he charges both police officers with murder when very clearly they were in the right. You may disagree with the outcome, but it wasn't criminal what happened. It wasn't murder. They were doing their jobs. They were trying to stop someone who had a taser and was potentially trying to incapacitate a police officer and take his gun. And he charged them with murder. And he did it, and everyone very straightforwardly believes and knows he did it because he was trying to get in the good graces of voters, and it didn't work for him. They threw him out. Uh, 54,000 people in the runoff. And Paul Howard has been there. I think he served seven terms. The man has been there since the 90s as the district attorney in, in Fulton County. Uh, and he will be the district attorney no more in Fulton County. And good riddance to him. I don't know Fannie Willis, but she was, by all accounts, an upstanding uh, assistant district attorney in Fulton County and will be more level-headed and and not corrupt like Paul Howard. So good riddance to him. The voters in Fulton County got it right, even if hardly any of them ever voted. Making sense of current events during these extraordinary times can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Visit bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring renowned scholar Robert P. George, the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Project in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. Robbie George is a 2005 winner of the Bradley Prize and a member of the Bradley Foundation's Board of Directors. In this episode, he makes the case against judging historical figures by present standards and for telling the truth about American history, protecting the integrity of the institution institutions of civil society and being more understanding of those who have perspectives different from our own. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end and then FDN.org slash Liberty to watch the video. Bradley FDN.org slash Liberty. New episodes debut weekly. Come back off and subscribe to their YouTube channel. Be notified when a new one is posted. Bradley FDN.org slash Liberty. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The one year anniversary of this year program, which maybe we'll get into in a little while, but we got too much news to cover right now. Important stuff to cover. Um, I, 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 
So one of those things. So I, I don't like to to basically revisit stuff from the prior hours in the show. You should stick around. I got three hours and you should listen to all three hours. But I realize, given the logistics of the show, that that is impossible. And I do feel the need to reset on the Kamala Harris stuff before we delve deep into uh, Georgia elections and, and things that happened here in Georgia. Uh, the reason that I feel that way is is the Kamala Harris stuff actually is very big news, and I want to spend a little bit of time on it before we get into the Georgia elections. Uh, so Kamala Harris, as you all know by now, is the um, nom- vice presidential nominee for the Democrats, or she will formally be so at the Democratic convention that is upcoming. Uh, the thing that I think really needs to be noticed by everyone is this. When you look at the Democratic platform for the Democratic National Convention, what you see is a uh, messaging boost for the establishment Democratic message. You don't see Justice Democrats on there. You don't see the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes. You don't see the Stacey Abramses of the world. Uh, you don't see any of this stuff uh, that uh, the Democrats would have you believe was a core part of their message. They are essentially uh, pushing all of that away to message towards a middle class that is concerned about progressive radicals hijacking the Democratic Party but doesn't like Donald Trump. And they think that Kamala Harris gives them that, uh, given her law and order messaging in California as attorney general and the like. They think that th- that will give them the visual they need. When you look at the Democratic Party platform, like, for example, Stacey Abrams is not speaking at the Democratic Party convention. Beto O'Rourke is not being given an invitation to speak. You have a very establishment oriented Republican Party. You have a very establishment-oriented uh, Republican message, or I'm sorry, Democratic message. You, you, you have a message that is designed to get voters disaffected by Donald Trump, not a message designed to lock the progressive base of the Democratic Party in for Joe Biden. If anything, it very much looks like the, the Democratic Party at this point is convinced that given their hatred of Donald Trump, that progressives, you, you could serve them a, a turd burger and as their presidential nominee, which many of them think Joe Biden is, and they would still go vote for the turd burger and then deal with it later. As I said in the first hour, uh, somewhat hyperbolically, uh, admittedly so, but if David Duke were the Democratic nominee, the Democrats would detest him, despise him, and hate him, and they would vote for him to get rid of Donald Trump thinking we'll deal with him later. The reality is, and this is the thing that that makes Democrats mad, Democrats always have such a a smug opinion of themselves. They never believe it could happen to them. The reality is that the Democrats are just as capable of getting a Donald Trump candidate. And all the stuff they loathe about Donald Trump, uh, they are just as likely to get a Donald Trump with all the faults and weaknesses they perceive Donald Trump has, an authoritarian streak, the the use of government to to reward friends and and the like. And they'll turn a blind eye to it, and they'll say it's not so. They, they'll never believe it. They'll never acknowledge it. Uh, they, they will never engage with it. They will deny it. And the reality is they're just as capable. But Democrats tend to view themselves in, in morally superior terms to the GOP, just as, frankly, a lot of Republicans view themselves as morally superior to the Democrats. 
the number of Republicans I know who believe that uh, when I say I've got a friend who's a Democrat, how can you be a friend of this person? This person is is pro-abortion. They kill kids and they're going to destroy the country with their policies. The Democrats say the exact same freaking thing about the Republicans uh, other than killing kids, uh, except they believe Republicans kill kids too. They kill kids when they're out of the womb. Uh, they believe Republicans starve poor kids to death and hate America and will destroy the country. I, I This is the thing that, that boggles my mind. It's actually probably the most frustrating part of American politics to me right now is that uh, we've become so tribal that everyone believes that their side is the righteous side and the righteous cause, and there's not actually any recognition that the other side views you as contemptibly as as you view them. I mean, for every Republican out there who believes the Democrats are going to destroy the country, the Democrats believe the Republicans are going to destroy the country, and both sides are like, no, no, the other side really is going to destroy the country. Well, they both say the same thing. Get over yourselves. The fact of the matter is I do think that the Democratic Party is deeply disruptive to the American ideal, and we see this with the 1619 Project as they're trying to rewrite the American uh, constitutional system and the American ideal to be something that it never was and never will be, uh, that they, they want to revise it to make it about slavery when that clearly was not the case, uh, but that fits their prevailing narrative of identity politics and intersectionalism and critical race theory, uh, which is just a, a hijacked uh, quasi-Marxist idea that has embedded the Democratic Party. That being said... I got Democrats I love to hang out and have a beer with. Sorry. Uh, Sometimes they're actually funny. Some of them are really good cooks. Kamala Harris, I suspect, actually does cook. She's got her her dad, I believe, was Jamaican. She's got a, a jerk chicken recipe. I'd love to get it. Now, I've got a jerk chicken recipe I've sent out to my recipe list. There is a recipe coming, by the way. I do have recipes. I, I've been cajoled by friends of mine to get back to recipes. I'll get there. I'm sure I could have a good time uh, hanging out with Kamala Harris, but I'm told by even some Democrats, uh, she's actually very nice to people if you're useful to her and not to others. And I have a, I, I have an abiding, here, here's, here's the thing. I, I have a abiding dislike of politicians and I don't know Kamala Harris. I've never met Kamala Harris, but I, I've had friends of mine who are Democrats tell me she's very nice if you're useful to her. Otherwise, she's not. And I know Republican politicians like this, and this drives me up the wall. It is a sign of poor character to me. You know, I I, I will tell you this. Say what you will about Donald Trump, and I realize that if you hate the president, you'll never believe me. I have seen the man unguarded without him knowing I was watching. This is before he became president. Uh, I was actually in Trump Tower, was headed to interview him, and he was actually on the floor downstairs in Trump Tower where the media would have you believe he never goes and he was just hanging out visiting with the janitor and just talking to the guy like he was his best friend just somebody who worked in the building I have seen certain Republican presidential candidates who will go nameless be really nasty to hotel staff and just be really cold to people and it was very off-putting I'll tell you one of the nicest, honestly, one one of the nicest people. Uh, I was in, I I, I privately interviewed Jeb Bush. And I I think it was just the, 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 the upbringing of the Bush family that it didn't matter who you were, they treated you as if you were royalty. And I was actually... I was stunned by Jeb Bush. Uh, we were in a conference room and uh, a hotel employee walked in, didn't realize we were in the room, uh, came into the room to bring stuff. And we were having a private one-on-one meeting and Bush was like, oh, no, come on in. 
introduced himself, shook hands with the guy, uh, told him not to worry about us. We, we were just meeting one-on-one. I was actually, I like that. And and that's, you get the sense, you can tell when someone's genuine like this, and he apparently does it with everyone. Whether you like Jeb Bush or not, it was very endearing. I've also encountered a Republican politician who will go nameless, who was deeply aggravated, and I, I actually like this Republican, but had a very similar experience with a Bush where the hotel employee walked in and we're a different hotel, different setting. A uh, hotel employee walks in. Uh, they wanted to, to put the bottles of water in. Uh, we were meeting between meetings and he was very cold with the person. And I was a little bit taken aback with just how cold he was. Now, I, I realize there's some level of suspicion there. We had the Mitt Romney um, thing in 2012 where it was a waiter in the room who was recording the conversation. But this is very clearly the person just coming in and didn't know we were in the room. And it was just, it, it was very off-putting. Uh, I, I've seen another uh, Republican candidate uh, actually berate a reporter when the reporter was really just trying to confirm a detail that had been said to someone else. And his network was requiring him. And he was so nice to the presidential candidate. And the candidate was just nasty. To, and it was just a beat reporter. It wasn't a, wasn't a prominent reporter at the time. That, that person, the reporter, has now become very famous. Um, but at the time, it wasn't. Just a, just an underling reporter. And the Republican candidate was so nasty to him. And, and then subsequent to that, I knew people who worked for the, this, can, this candidate. Uh, he was also in the Senate and was told that, you know, he very much is like that with people. That if you're not useful to him, he's, he's very much a not nice person to you. Uh, contrast that to um, it, contrast that to David Perdue. David Perdue has a middle class upbringing. His parents were public school teachers. That man has never met a stranger. You know, I didn't support David Perdue when he ran in 2014. Karen Handel and I have been friends for years, and I supported Karen Handel. And I was deeply suspicious of David Perdue, frankly, because he was a CEO and Sonny Perdue's brother. Now, I don't have a problem with Sonny Perdue or whatnot, but just it was like Republican establishment picking the guy, and he was a CEO, and CEOs, frankly, tend to be terrible senators. Uh, when you look at the senators in Washington, D.C., who have run companies as CEOs, they tend to be among the worst. It's like, I, I, I can't support this guy. Republican or Democrat, the ones who've been CEOs were terrible. And David Perdue has never met a stranger. That man would give you the shirt off his back. I, I continue to be flabbergasted uh, with David Perdue. And this, by the way, is why Democrats who believe just superficially Georgia is a, is a state that's trending blue and John Ossoff is going to hand David Perdue a, 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 his hat. No, uh, people don't understand David Perdue behind the scenes. He would much rather sit and hang out with the guy mopping the floor than with the guy in the $10,000 suit. It is the most endearing thing about David Perdue I have ever encountered. In I love politicians on both sides of the aisle who would much rather hang out with the people who are cleaning up behind the scenes than hang out with the people who are giving them campaign donations. Those are the genuine people who realize there's a thing they got to do, but they're just normal people. Uh, I personally like normal people in politics, and this gets me back to Kamala Harris, where I am told by a lot of Democrats that she is not like that, that she is uh, very aloof, that she uh, uses people, and that she is is very calculating. She's very political, and you can see that. I mean, take so I, I got a, a buddy down the street of mine, Todd. Uh, Todd and I get together, and and we do major Fourth of July um, I I explosions every year. Uh, man, for the Fourth of July, we were out of town, and so. 
Uh, I thought it was going to be a small group of people, and Todd basically invited the entire neighborhood to come down, and we shot fireworks all night long, and it was a spectacle. You you want a guy like that running for Congress who just is a nice guy who he knows everybody. He's friends with everybody. doesn't matter what their politics are. doesn't matter what church they go to. You just you want people who are genuinely kind to other people. And yes, he's texting me right now, which is why I brought that up, as opposed to Kamala Harris, which by all accounts— from uh, from multiple Democrats I know, she's not like that. She 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 comes across on camera one way and with useful people one way, and with other people she's very cold and very aloof. Um, she she's not a very pleasant person. And I'm always surprised, honestly, in politics and even in Hollywood. Like I know some very famous celebrities in Hollywood who I don't talk about because we we don't see the world at all. Uh, in the same way. I mean, not at all. Our politics are completely aligned. In fact, uh, one of them I've known for a very long time and and, and built up a friendship. And now, I mean, I, I hadn't talked to the guy in, in a couple of years because he's just, he he's so mad at me for saying nice stuff with the president. I don't know that we'll ever be able to rekindle that relationship. Uh, but at the same time, you encounter people who are just, they, they, they're genuinely good people. You can tell it uh, that they busted their butt waiting tables, going to, to, to opportunities to be on TV, and, and they finally made it big and famous, and, and they've maintained that humble streak. And then you meet other people who are just like the privileged lifestyle, like you know Gwyneth Paltrow and her goop nonsense. This is a woman who lives in a world that is not reality-based, and she is from a world of privilege, and I am sure she is very nice to a lot of people. But when you look at this this goop scam stuff that she's got going on, it makes you wonder how are you connected to the real world? I I, I just I don't understand people like that. Now I realize I, I've kind of I've I've gone off the rails here in this conversation, but it gets back to the basic point here of, of Joe Biden has has nominated a woman, Kamala Harris, to be his vice presidential nominee who has a foot in every camp of the Democratic Party, in large part because she's a progressive opportunist. And the goal of the Republican Party here, because so many people expect that Joe Biden may not even see it through, may, if he does, he's only going to be a one-term guy. The goal of the Republican Party must now be to expose Kamala Harris as a rank opportunist, rudderless, principleless, unable to lead, and held captive by the mob, and willing to say or do anything to placate the mob to get elected. And I actually think, from what I hear that's going to be fairly easy for the GOP. Kamala Harris, at the end of the day, if these Democrats I've talked to are believed, she may be a safe pick for Joe Biden, but only until people get to know her. Well, you should know that the Trump campaign has uh, gotten out very quickly uh, with their messaging on this situation. Here is the president's ad against uh, the Biden-Harris ticket. Kamala Harris ran for president by rushing to the radical left, embracing Bernie's plan for socialized medicine, calling for trillions in new taxes, attacking Joe Biden for racist policies. Voters rejected Harris. They smartly spotted a phony. But not Joe Biden. He's not that smart. Biden calls himself a transition candidate. He is handing over the reins to Kamala while they jointly embrace the radical left. Slow Joe and phony Kamala. Perfect together. Wrong for America. Slow Joe. (laughs) Okay. Now, uh, there's a little more to this. Uh, The Democrats out there have released a memo. Some of them, led by Valerie Jarrett, have circulated a memo uh, that they address to, quote, unquote, the most powerful people in media. 
Let me read you this memo. This is, the Washington Free Beacon has this. We wanted to respectfully share some thoughts with you about the media's role in the scrutiny and coverage of women and women of color candidates in general and the vice presidential candidate in particular. Here are things they say should be out of bounds. Describing a female politician such as Kamala Harris as ambitious. Uh, criticizing a female politician for uh, being in subservient or supportive roles. Using a, a subjective metric or, or saying they're using a subjective metric. Uh, commenting on their physical appearance or fashion choices. Reporting on a female candidate's electability. Describing a female politician as unqualified or reporting on doubts. Reporting on the heritage of non-white candidates. Publishing unflattering images, especially ones that portray female candidates as expressing anger because it per uh, perpetuates racist tropes and suggests that women are too emotional and might even hate America. Now, here's the thing. It is, it's eye-opening watching the American media suddenly come to terms with their treatment of Sarah Palin in 2008. I mean, in the last 72 hours, there have been multiple, uh, there, there have been multiple medium outlets running stories about how they all got it wrong with Sarah Palin. I mean, for example, how many of you really believe that Sarah Palin said that she could see Russia from her house? There are actually a lot of reporters who pushed back on uh, some of the coverage initially. Uh, by saying, no, no, she really was an idiot. She said she could see Russia from her house. In fact, she never said that. And the reporters who thought she did are like, oh, really? And now, and this was all in the run-up to Kamala Harris. You see this over and over again with the Democrats. It's like uh, Bill Maher, who I know, I've been on his show several times, did a monologue in 2016, or yeah, 2018, uh, 2016, that, uh, you know, we, we said forever that these Republican candidates were terrible. George Bush, John McCain, Mitt Romney, we've always said they were racist. We've always said they were biggest. we always said they were bad. This time we really, really mean it. And no one's going to take us seriously. Well, they do that all the time. I mean, take, for example, the hand-wringing over sexism and, and, and the like and the treatment of, of Bill Clinton with, the, with both Donald Trump and then with Brett Kavanaugh. Suddenly they got to come to terms with Bill Clinton. Well, 20 years from now, you and I both know the Democrats will be wringing their hands about how Kamala Harris stood with the victims of sexual assault against Joe Biden until the moment she got off for the vice presidential pick, and then she threw the sexual assault victims under the – you know, the, the irony here is that I never actually took credibly the Tara Reid allegation. I know a lot of you did. I never did for a variety of reasons, including uh, significant inconsistencies in her story. There was something that happened. I, by the way, I, I believe something happened to her, just not everything she said. And I didn't push that story hard. And some of you criticized me for it. Kamala Harris did push that story hard. And Kamala Harris did believe her and the other accusers and now has walked away from them. 20 years from now, it is predictable. I mean, just, just put the marker down now, 20 years in the future, the Democrats, confronted by a Republican they don't like, where allegations are against them, will seize on Kamala Harris walking away from uh, the victims of sexual assault and lament that she did this. But right now, they are perfectly happy with it because Democrats really are all the things they say Republicans are. Democrats really have in them all the stuff they say they hate about Republicans. They just can't see it for themselves, or at least they can't admit it.
Well, with with Kamala Harris as the as the Democratic nominee, you know the, the Democrats say they believe in equality, but if you call a a female politician ambitious, now it, it's sexist, possibly racist as well. With Kamala Harris, uh, let, let's just be real honest here: the left doesn't really believe in equality. Uh, they believe in in doing or saying whatever they can to shut the rest of us up, which is why you've still got to be bold out there. But one caution in in the Kamala Harris thing: listen, I, I realize it, it. I really do firmly believe this that uh, you'll see this on MSNBC. In fact, yesterday they, the, the way they were throwing around the word misogyny, uh, you, you would think it was was some sort of balloon they were were hitting around in the air. Um, it the Democrats will say or do whatever they can to silence you. They will call you a misogynist. If you criticize Kamala Harris, you can criticize her the exact same way you'd criticize a man. But with, if you criticize her in the way you would a man that, well, it's misogyny. You'd never say that if it was a man, you better shut up. You sexist. And no, actually you would, you, you would say that they were an ambitious politician or uh, they were a grifter or they were rudderless or principless or, or not a leader, but a follower. No, 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 you can't say that about a woman or, or they'll, they'll make it about race. Um, and you just, you got to plow through it and you, you got to, you, most people understand what you mean. Uh, the, the left isn't going to, to give you credit. Um, you got to be real careful there, folks. Just, this is going to, to move forward. The Democrats are going to up the rhetoric and up the ante. Meanwhile, uh, we've got stuff that's still happening in actual public policy, not just the politics on the campaign trail. Uh, joining me to talk about this, the Deputy Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy, uh, Theodore Walt, is with me. How are you today? I'm doing really well, sir. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm glad you're here because there is a, a real stark contrast, I think, uh, now that we see the Democratic Party ticket shaping up in that there's been a lot of rhetoric over the years about bringing and domesticating American industries back home, uh, keeping the supply chain domestic and uh, the Biden's record, frankly. And I realize you're 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 on the public policy side. I don't want to drag you into politics here, but you, you got a lot of Democrats who've loved outsourcing for cheap goods and stuff. And we're at the point where we particularly see, as the president has pointed out, in the medical supply chain, uh, that we need to have a lot of this industry back home, among other stuff. And and it sounds like the president has some plans put in place to do this. Yeah, let's let's start with what happened last week. A really big uh, story came out of Washington uh, that a lot of your listeners will know uh, about, the Tennessee Valley Authority. It's a federal agency, so the taxpayers uh, cover a lot of its costs, um, and it is probably one of the largest utility companies in the country, provides uh, electrical generation for most of the southeastern United States. They've got a CEO at TVA who is the highest paid government employee in the United States, makes about $8.5 million in compensation every year, and he got a boost in his pay last winter. He turned around this spring and started laying off hundreds of American working men and women, bringing in cut-wage foreign labor to take their jobs. Now, the CEO uh, wasn't a hire of the president. The president of the United States can't hire or fire the CEO, uh, but the president can control the board of directors of the TVA. And so what the president did last week is he signed an executive order that will limit the ability of federal government agencies or departments to use this kind of offshore contract labor And then he fired the president of the board and one other member of the board and said, uh, I will keep firing the board of directors until you rescind this decision and reinstate these workers. Late last week, we got word from TVA that they heard the president's message and they rescinded the layoff notices and reinstated about 350 American workers. Good for him. 
Uh, that that is a way to get your message across when you're the president, I suppose. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Theodore Wald from the, the domestic policy advisor for the president, uh, and this this is a big issue here: uh, the offshoring of jobs and the offshoring of, of American business beyond just. Uh, firing boards of directors and government agencies and, and whatnot. What can the president do without having to go through a dysfunctional Congress to try to re-incentivize uh, bringing home domestic businesses and supply chains? Yeah, I think I think so. The way you framed it at the outset is exactly right. A lot of people may have thought, you know, look, if we can save a few dollars on athletic socks or, um, you know, uh, plastic gloves, having them made in China, that's fine. But the pandemic has certainly sharpened everyone's focus on our over-reliance on heavy industry manufacturing being located outside of the United States. So the president has been unveiling step-by-step a phased approach to reshoring a lot of our heavy industry, our pharmaceutical industry. A lot of your listeners will probably be surprised to learn that about 90% of the nation's aspirin is now made in China. Um, So getting those pharmaceuticals back here on our shores and then also bringing back those jobs. So we've been taking a phased approach, and there's a number of things that we can do, whether it's uh, some tax incentives to get businesses to reshore, uh, recognizing depreciation in manufacturing or facilities built overseas uh, through a capital gains tax incentive. So a lot of tools that the president can use. But I I think what, you know, the way you said it at the outset is is clear. Um, Anyone who's confused about the Democrats' policy Uh, on offshoring, displacement, outsourcing should hop on the Amtrak, head up to Wilmington, Delaware. You will see closed factories, shuttered core yards. Uh, You'll also see the headquarters of most of the multinational corporations in the country, most of the credit card companies, most of the big lending houses, mortgage lending companies. Uh, They're up in Wilmington, Delaware, not because of the weather. They're there because that's where they got a lot of protection for 30 years. Well, they did get a lot of protection for 30 years. And in Delaware, uh, those of us who, who did business law and corporate law when, when we were in practice know that Delaware is, is famous for incorporating a lot of businesses, giving them overwhelming corporate protections. Uh, it, Washington as well over the years has been giving a lot of corporations protections for outsourcing and the like and in the tax code and the regulatory structure. And while the president can do some things with executive orders, there seems to be allegedly – some bipartisan consensus in repatriating parts of the supply chain and jobs here. I don't know that it can get done in a presidential year because nobody wants to share credit on stuff, but is there any moves towards anything in Congress to actually improve the situation? I, I think, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, presidential politics will, will always limit uh, members of Congress willingness to come together and, and actually secure some victories for the American people. They'll, they'll put it off to the next year and the next year. Uh, But I will say that the actions that the president's taking, whether it's on TVA or doing some of these unilateral executive orders on taxes, will lay the groundwork to make it easier for members of Congress to come together. I mean, as as you know, you've been saying this for for years. You're going to be made to pick a side. You, You will be made to pick a side. And here what we want is more members of Congress, more elected leaders in this country taking the side of the American worker. And the best way to incentivize that is to take decisive action. You, if, if only they would. Um, let's talk about the, the job aspect of this. Um, you mentioned the TVA and bringing people home. We've seen a number of American corporations. I mean, Disney is an example where they, they generate a lot of outrage by outsourcing jobs and then after outrage, bringing some of those jobs back. But we're also in, in terms of a pandemic here. We're seeing the econo- e- economy hurt, uh, the workforce decimated. 
and trying to re-incentivize getting jobs back. Uh, are there any policy plans or anything the president's pushing so that as companies are bringing jobs back to the workforce, that they're not going out and finding cheaper labor to, to replace American workers? Yeah, so we have a whole slate of proposals as part of this executive order the president signed last week. We're going to be unveiling a number of regulations that will change the way, in particular, the H-1B visa works. As a lot of your listeners will know, the H-1B visa was created in the early 1990s uh, through an act of Congress to uh, fill a temporary, what they said then was a temporary shortage in, in skilled tech workers in the country. It was supposed to be phased out by 1995, 96, still on the books. Um, still allows a lot of companies like you named Disney, uh, Southern California Edison, the most recent being Vanguard up in Philadelphia announced that they'd be laying off about 2,000 workers and replacing them with H-1B visa holders. It's still being used to basically gut American wages and, and to replace American workers with foreign uh, labor. So we tighten a lot of the rules on, on the H-1B visa program. Uh, one of them, just to give your listeners a flavor, uh, the minimum wage salary uh, for the H-1 visa have been set uh, since 1998 or so, have not been updated. So the maximum salary that someone on an H-1B visa can be paid is around $60,000, depending on where they are in the country. Um, meanwhile, their American-trained worker that they, they'd be replacing, they can make upwards of $120,000, $130,000. So you bring someone in on H-1B, it not only depreciates the salaries in that area or in that industry, it's got a cascading effect on salaries for American workers in any attached industry as well. So tightening those rules uh, will incentivize private sector employers to always go to the most qualified and capable worker, but also to pay a decent wage for the work they want done. Nice. Okay, so we've got a minute or two left here. Let, let, let me see if you can, uh, with the audience now, try to explain if if they're trying to look for a differentiation between the president and others out there, uh, what's the key takeaway uh, that you think people need to understand about how the president is pursuing policies to protect American jobs? Yeah, so, so two things real quick. One, the president's going to fight for every single American job. I can tell you over the last few weeks, a number of members of Congress, their reaction to the TVA story was, well, it's only 300 jobs. Who cares? Uh, the president cares. The president is going to fight for every single American job. And then the second story is the president believes in the talent and the ability of the American people. Uh, the last three and a half years, we've invested in entrepreneurship programs, apprenticeships, uh, skilled retraining opportunities for our workers, and it's already starting to bear fruit. And in the last three years, we've produced more STEM graduates, that's you know, uh, young people with degrees in science, mathematics, engineering, computer science, than ever before. And not only that, but those graduates last year coming out of college uh, across a whole host of testing metrics beat the pants off of their peer competitors in India, China, and Russia. So the president's message with the TVA uh, action wasn't just um, you know, for the swamp to get in line. It was also a clear message to his fellow citizens. Do not believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that Americans lack the ability the talent or the credentials to lead this country through a recovery and into a position of dominance in the information age. Because the American worker has and always will, if you give them the tools, always will finish the job. That's, that is a fantastic message. Th thank you very much for stopping by and, and sharing with us. And, and, you know, I totally, I guess, in, in the news headlines, missed all the TVA stuff. So I'm glad you were here to, to put it on the radar because that, that was impressive. I've been saying for years we needed presidents to do that sort of stuff, and this one did.
appreciate you having me on, sir. Thanks. Thank you. Absolutely. Theodore Walt, he is the domestic policy advisor for the president of the United States. Uh, we got some calls on hold. I'll take some more as well. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let's go on, take a quick timeout. We'll be back with your calls. You know, it, it's actually very funny to watch in real time this morning as the media starts to try to clean up, uh, <laughs> clean up the accusations and... Uh, <laughs> They're, they're memory holding. Remember the Kamala Harris exchange about uh, Joe Biden being a racist and backing the bussers and the like in, in her exchange uh, with Joe Biden on the campaign trail and, and on the debate stage today? They're running uh, headlines in the Washington Post. Uh, no, she didn't actually call him a racist. They are going to memory hole that thing. You will never know that that exchange ever happened. They will. I mean, and if you dare to point out that it happened, they're going to accuse you of being a racist uh, for, for daring to point that stuff out. It is so predictable at this point, uh, just how the media does this sort of stuff uh, with these sorts of exchanges uh, that you yourself saw on the campaign trail. My goodness gracious, um, and there, there's so much stuff out there that she engaged in with the, um, I mean, just, just in the attacks with, I'm, I'm seeing if I can find while I'm talking about this, um, I, you know, she believed the Biden accusers. She uh, blasted him on, on the uh, busing issue and took him to task on that and and said that he supported and worked with racist and now no no he didn't actually he he didn't do that Let's and i'm going to now direct this at vice president biden um i do not believe you are a racist and i agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground but i also believe and it's personal and i was actually very it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. I don't think you're a racist, but you collaborated with the racist to keep little girls like me down. And now the people like, oh, see, see, she didn't say it was racist, didn't say it was racist. Pay no attention to all the other stuff she said. It's just, it, it's fascinating to watch the damage control at work now. Uh, let's go to the phones for, uh, no, wrong number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Jim, you're going to be up next. Welcome. Well, uh, kind of an observation that leads into a question is, uh, since you and I both think that she is likely to trim her sails in whatever direction, that leads into my question is, do you think that that may mollify the left, hard left, just enough so they won't really launch on her? Oh, yeah. Listen, um, you know, so there's a Fox News article out today, and I, I had to roll my eyes when I saw it that... Uh, left-wing discontent with Kamala Harris or some such. Um, here's the truth of the matter. Uh, they they don't care. Joe Biden, uh, I, I mean, J- Joe Biden could have nominated a, a turd sandwich 
and they would be excited by it. Joe, Joe Biden could have nominated John Kasich, a former Republican governor of Ohio, and the left would be dancing with joy in the streets, uh, largely because it is for them, it's all about defeating Donald Trump. They, they don't care otherwise. They, they don't care anything about it. Um, and Kamala Harris has done enough to be opportunistic with the left these days that she's totally they're they're totally fine. Listen, she voted against someone uh, being a judge for the sole purpose or for the sole reason that that person was a Christian. And I'm not actually making that up. That's actually real. She actually voted against someone because she believed that they were uh, too committed to their Christian faith. And she was very open that she was doing this. She didn't care about a, a litmus test of the Constitution, a religious litmus test. That That's for you people, not for her. And, yeah, they don't care. I mean, Joe Biden, Joe Biden could actually nominate Donald Trump Jr. to be his running mate, and the left would love it. Uh, they, they, don't, they just want to beat Donald Trump. They, they don't care who the nominee is at this point. They just want to beat Donald Trump. He, he has so broken them uh, that they, they've got to he, – he's got to he's – Joe Biden's got to win. It doesn't matter how he wins. They just want him to win. Uh, now, to the phones, Bill in Woodstock. I'm going to go to you next, Bill. Thanks for calling. Hey, Eric. Congratulations on your uh, year anniversary of your show. It's really, really enjoy it. We agree on a lot of things. God guns, barbecue, craft beer, bourbon, college football. I even agree with you on masks. <laughs> So, nice. I appreciate I appreciate your perspective and your your fresh air to the airways. I wish I'd heard you when you um, substituted for Rush. I, I want to try to catch catch you doing that again sometime. But as far as Kamala Harris, your analysis is spot on. And um, I've got a left leaning, way left leaning kid sister who you're exactly right. They could have a nom. Biden could have nominated a turd sandwich and she'd be on board. Harris is a scary part of our future if if Biden is elected. And I don't know how to fight it. Uh, Todd Herman yesterday on Russ called this the infection election. And if you doubt that there's a deep state, just watch what's going on. You can feel it. You can see it. And, and frankly, Harris scares me. I don't know how we're going to beat her. You know, the, the, so the ultimate problem with Harris, Bill, for, okay, before you get off here, I, I got to ask, do, do you have a favorite bourbon? Uh, yeah, right now it's um, uh, Elijah, uh, Elijah Craig. Nice. Good call. Good call. I am I'm mostly a Basil Hayden guy these days, um, but yeah, Elijah Craig is good. Now, I, I will tell you, uh, here's the problem. You, you're right on Harris, and here's the ultimate problem. Democrats for four years now, five years now, have made the case that Donald Trump is a principleless, immoral cad who will say or do anything to, to take power. That is Kamala Harris. Uh, and, and they'll never acknowledge how much of a Trump version she is. But she is. I mean, Kamala Harris is a woman who, if we're honest about it, she and Willie Brown, when he was the mayor of, of San Francisco, had a relationship uh, that helped her advantageously get more power. She was willing to say or do anything to get power. And unfortunately for us, uh, and, and Bill, I'm going to let you go there. Th- thanks for the phone call. You, you can uh, listen on the stream or on radio. Um, uh, unfortunately for us, we have moved into an age where more and more we have people who just want power. They don't really have principle. They just want power. And for every accusation against Donald Trump that he is an, an amoral, principalist hack who wants power and will be authoritarian, there's one on the left. And Joe Biden has just put one of them up as his vice presidential nominee. 
uh, Kamala Harris is not a leader. She is a follower of what the woke mob on Twitter wants. And those are dangerous people. As, as much as the left raises this criticism about Donald Trump, that's exactly what they've got with Kamala Harris. Except the problem is that where Donald Trump generally surrounds himself with competent people who limit government and, and believe that individuals should be able to live their lives, Kamala Harris wants the government to force you to live your life in some way. When, when Theodore Wald was here from the White House, he was pointing out that the saying I always have is, is you will be made to care. And they want to force you to care in ways that they care about. They want to force you to do things in the way they want. And this is a deep problem with the authoritarian left, that they claim that Donald Trump is some sort of totalitarian authoritarian. They're the ones who want to use the government to shut down churches, close churches, shut down Christian education, and close up uh, ministries around the country that dare not get on board the left-wing social agenda. That is dangerous, and Kamala Harris is willing to lead the charge for them. Making sense of current events during these extraordinary times can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Visit bradleyfdn.org liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring renowned scholar Robert P. George, the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Project in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. Robbie George is a 2005 winner of the Bradley Prize and a member of the Bradley Foundation's Board of Directors. In this episode, he makes the case against judging historical figures by present standards and for telling the truth about American history, protecting the integrity of the institution institutions of civil society and being more understanding of those who have perspectives different from our own. That's Bradley with an L E Y at the end and then FDN.org slash Liberty to watch the video. Bradley FDN.org slash Liberty. New episodes debut weekly. Come back often, subscribe to their YouTube channel. Be notified when a new one is posted. Bradley FDN.org slash Liberty. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The first anniversary of this year program. You know, I've been doing radio for nine years, but this one, we started it a year ago today, 9 to noon statewide in Georgia, from the North Georgia mountains to the to the Florida line, from the Chattahoochee to the coast. You can hear the show all over the state now. Uh, delighted by the growth. More than a dozen stations now uh, on board with us uh, as we move forward. Uh, there is some news you need to know. The Big 12, that which is different from the Big 10, the Big 12 uh, is planning on going ahead. They are uh, signaling they are. Now, what, what are the, the big 12? Baylor, Iowa State, University of Kansas, Kansas State, University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas Christian, University of Texas at Austin, Texas Tech, and West Virginia University. Now, uh, they've got some affiliate members as well. Uh, the Air Force Academy, uh, they got uh, the University of Alabama for their rowing team and, and stuff like that. But for, for football and all, it is Baylor, Iowa State, University of Kansas, Kansas State, uh, University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, TCU, uh, University of Texas, Texas Tech, and West Virginia University. They are going to play ball. They have uh, largely announced uh, that they are doing it. Uh, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are going to sit out, but uh, the Big 12 have decided they're going to do it. Now, funny enough, uh, they're, they're claiming that this has saved SEC football. Uh, so, some of the analysts out there, let me read you this. Uh, Tuesday, August 11th will be remembered as one of college football's darkest days. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 became the power first Power Five conferences to announce the postponement of their season for much of Tuesday morning. It was expected that those efforts from players and coaches would provide a small glimmer of hope. As reports surfaced, 
The Big Ten was thinking of delaying rather than flat-out cancellation. The conference elected to punt to the spring with the Pac-12 following suit. Uh, The decisions weren't shocking by either once formalized, uh, but uh, it was upsetting. Ohio State and Nebraska leaders immediately released statements disapproving. While two of the conferences made the choice to postpone, the Big 12 officials came to a different conclusion. A small fraction of Big 12 leaders wanted to cancel fall sports. A small portion wanted to move forward with the fall season with a bigger number wanting to delay. In the end, they elected to move forward with the 2020 season, which is significant to the survival of college football. The Big 12 decision uh, has decided to close the door. The ACC will follow suit with this. It appears if the ACC had opted out with the Big 12, it would have left the SEC as the remaining lone wolf pushing forward. Now, here's the thing. This is such a... a, um, I think if the SEC decided to do college football by itself, if the ACC set out as well, if the Big 12 set out, I think the AC, I think the SEC would do it anyway. Uh, I, I think these, these Southern states uh, love their football. We all love football and that they would do it. Um, but the ACC and the Big 12 looks like they're going to do it. Uh, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 sitting on the sidelines. Now, here's a problem. A lot of people are pointing out with the Big Ten, putting off their football seat until the spring, that essentially puts their football into a deep winter, given the way uh, winter works up there. Now, I will tell you, uh, Matthew Brown went on CNN. Uh, he is a linebacker at uh, the University of Georgia. And this is what he had to say to CNN about the football season. We're back with more on the breaking news. It is really rattling the sports world today. The Big Ten announcing that it is postponing all fall sports. And of course, that includes football. This decision comes as President Trump is pushing for athletes to return to the field while players themselves are split as to whether or not that is safe. Matthew Brown is a linebacker for the University of Georgia and also with me, former NFL player Benjamin Watson. So gentlemen, thank you both so much for for jumping on with me. And and Matthew, I just want to begin with you. I know, you know, Georgia's SEC. So far, you guys are, are good to go. What is your reaction to the Big Ten postponing its entire fall season? The commissioner said it became, quote unquote, abundantly clear that it was too much of a health risk. What do you think about that? Personally, I think it's just kind of um, with so much uncertainty going around, it's just clear to it's nice to have somebody make some decision as in regards to football. But <clears throat> with Coach Smart, he's been teaching us that we just have to stay ready when if the whenever the call comes, if it's time to play, we'll be ready to play. And then we if you stay prepared, you won't have to uh, prepare for the for the season. And that's just our mission and our focus. That's what's going to be the case for the next few weeks, too. I see you're already in Athens. You're ready to roll if the call comes down to play. But how do you feel personally, Matthew? You know, just given all of the potential risks, are you willing to risk it to play? Personally, there's risks with everything. There's risk with football. There's risk with driving a car. Um, but with my faith, um, I'm supposed to live my life without fear. And... And with our with our medical staff, I'm sure that I have the confidence that they're going to take care of our team. And with Coach Smart and the leadership group, we just we stay disciplined, follow the protocols. And I feel like <clears throat> that this is the best it's the best spot for us to be in terms of um, not contracting the virus and following the guidelines. So I think this would be pretty interesting as to see how everything goes. But as in terms of being uh, fearful of the risks, no sir, no ma'am. There's um, there's college football, and it's a thrill to be here. And it's a value to be here, and everybody wants to participate, see how the season goes. The 
this is good news. Uh, Y'all, we need a break from politics. We just do. Everything's become political, whether your restaurant can stay open or not as political, whether you wear a mask or not as political. Uh, the, The whole world has gone political, and it is exhausting. It is exhausting. Man, my buddy Joe Cunningham just texted me a link to a story. University of Georgia urges students to consider wearing a face mask during sex. And he writes, happy anniversary, go tech. Um, you know, they've they've withdrawn, they, they've memory hold their flyer. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, the University of Georgia put out COVID-19 guidance and uh, there were, <laughs> um, for those incapable of socially distancing, um, wear masks while having intimate relations. And this is my favorite part. It actually advises that you should consider engaging in positions where your faces are not close to one another. (laughs) The University of Georgia did that. They actually put this out. That you you should wear masks and 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 use positions where your your faces are not close to one another to use socially distant positions. Oh my goodness gracious! Um, so that'll be going on. Is it any wonder that these kids just say, "We already got a helmet on. <laughs> Might as well play football." Oh my goodness gracious! Um, wow. I I I want to I want to add something uh, here to something he said to. To live life without fear. Uh, you know, th- there are plenty of uh, passages of scripture out there for, for people who are of faith. Uh, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand from Isaiah 41. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in in Jesus Christ uh, from Philippians. Or, of course, there's the very famous one, uh, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or first, nor forsake you from Deuteronomy 31. There, there is a command for people of faith to not be afraid, to not live in fear. You know, so our kids, uh, the headmaster of our kids' school did a video for parents and and opened it by focusing on the health and safety and precautions they're they're taking are not done based in fear. It's being responsible. Here's the thing. If you are at 30,000 feet, you know what? Forget that. Let's do 15,000 feet. You're at 15,000 feet. You're going to jump out of an airplane. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, in Jeremiah 41. You jump out of that plane and don't be afraid. If it's your time to go, it's your time to go. And if it's not, you'll be fine. Do not be afraid. But notice what the scripture doesn't say. That There's not a passage in scripture that says be an idiot. There's not a passage of scripture that says be careless. There's not a passage in scripture that says don't use common sense. There's not a passage of scripture that says be stupid. So if, if you go jump out of that plane and you haven't put your parachute on, 
guess what's going to happen? You're going to die. You're going to hit the ground and your body is going to bounce. And before it bounces, you'll be dead. You won't even realize your body has bounced because you'll be staring at the face of God Almighty who will be giving you side eye for being an idiot. It's one thing to not be afraid. It's another thing to be an idiot. And you've got to distinguish between the two. It is fine to take precautions and live your life. Uh, but if you're taking no precautions at all, you're being an idiot. The whole idea though, well, I'm not going to wear a mask because scripture says don't be afraid. You, you know that this, this, it's about being a good neighbor and, and taking precautions. Um, it, it is, oh, and now I'm breaking, my, my heart is getting broken. I had tickets to the Masters and they've just announced they're going to play the Masters in the fall and there will be no audience. Ah, oh, man. But again, you know, they're, they're, they're taking precautions. They don't want to spread the virus. The football players out there who are being ridiculed, and you know this is going to turn into a political thing. You and I both know this is going to turn into a political thing. People are going to say, oh, it's the SEC. It's the Trump states that are playing football. They're all going to die. No, they can take precautions, but they can still try to live their life. You, you know, there's a, there's a fine line between holding up in your house scared to death and actually being a responsible citizen. Some of you need to stay home. Some of you need to uh, stay at home and not go out and about with the virus spreading. But for a lot of people, take precautions and live your life and play football. The, the, the idea of postponing until the spring as if the spring gets better, you don't know that that's going to be the case. These kids went to your schools, they've trained, and you should let them play football. And, and by the way, if we look at the trend lines in Georgia, you should know that we continue to fall. Uh, three, let's, let's see, uh, one, two, three, okay, three days ago, three days ago, the moving average in the state of Georgia was 2,833 cases. There were actually 1,236 reported that day. What's it today? 2,496. It's gone down. Uh, from uh, just a couple of weeks ago, it was 4,285. Today, it is 2,400 uh, some odd cases, and it's headed in the right direction still. Uh, the number of cases in Georgia continues to go down. All of these, these stories you're hearing about, the massive number of uh, new daily reports and stuff, actually... Uh, yes, the data report, we're having some big spikes, but those are old results coming back. They've been backlogged again because so many people have getting, been getting tested. But by and large, Georgia is still stable and declining with the virus. And all of the fear scenarios are there. You, you notice all your headlines. If you're listening to me and, and you've got a, a local news group at the bottom or the top of the hour that has news headlines, one of the headlines that you are guaranteed to hear is that the number of deaths in Georgia has gone up. Notice what they're not saying. What they're not saying is the number of cases has gone down. They were leading with the cases until the cases stopped uh, giving you any information to, to scare you. And so now they're going with deaths. Well, deaths are a two-week lagging indicator. So, of course, the number of deaths are going up now with the people who got the virus two weeks ago. That's just the reality of the situation. And I've been telling you for weeks that's what was going to happen. I told you a month ago when it was very clear what the trend lines in Georgia were going to start being, I told you a month ago that you just watch, all of a sudden we're going to start hearing about the deaths in a couple of weeks. And, and here we are. We are into that period where suddenly it's all about the deaths, the record-breaking death, record-breaking deaths. Well, you, two weeks ago, you had a viral high number of cases. 
it takes two weeks really to to play that out and to see the death toll. And so now it, it's it pay no attention to the fact the virus is going down, uh, the number of deaths are going up. This is this is fear porn. It paints an exaggerated picture of what's actually happening. Uh, and I told you guys that this was going to happen. Uh, I, I like being right, and I'm willing to, to pat myself on the back for this. I, it was predictable as the day is long that this is what the media was going to do, and sure enough, that's what they've done. And just because the number of deaths are going up, remember, the deaths are about a two-week lagging indicator. That's no reason to cancel football season. In fact, we know the virus is headed in the right direction, and the football players, given the safety that they're doing, are actually going to be remarkably safe. Hello, my friends. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Mourning the loss of my ability to go watch the Masters. If you haven't heard, they're announcing today, for sure confirming there will be no audience at the Masters. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I need to play you some audio, and it may make you cry laughing. Uh, It's so stupid and predictable. This CNN discussing the president's potential plan to to speak at Gettysburg. Remember, the reason the president decided he needed an alternative venue was because people lost their minds at the fact that he might speak at the White House. Suddenly, you know, it it was my advice to go to somewhere revolutionary or go to to Gettysburg, I said, or Yorktown or or, uh, Old North Bridge and give your speech. Well, he's thinking of Gettysburg and he's been up front. He tweeted it out. He may go to Gettysburg. And now I think the media realizes what an opportunity this is for the president. And now they're living and they're trying to spin it badly. Listen to this. I have to say, it's not the same thing. But when we heard this, one of the first things I thought of was an interview uh, that the president had at Normandy. And when we saw him there with all of those crosses in the background and that really struck a chord with a number of people as well because it became so politicized. To think that now we're looking at Gettysburg, uh, where the president has in recent weeks really taken it upon himself uh, to do his best to shore up the Confederacy, right? That we keep Confederate flags and, and monuments to Confederate generals going, that too leaves you scratching your head. It's all a bit nutty. I mean, here is Donald Trump defending Confederate monuments, uh, staying up, refusing to strip the name of of, uh, rogue traitors like Bragg from federal courts, now talking about speaking at Gettysburg. Remember, not giving a speech there about public policy, but self-aggrandizing himself, making that the the center of the um, Republican National Committee on uh, the middle of the battlefield and cemetery at Gettysburg. I can't think of a worse idea. Going to places like Normandy is important on anniversaries, and I would urge Donald Trump to go to Gettysburg and reflect uh, on, the, uh, on the battle there at the appropriate time, but this is deeply inappropriate. The White House isn't much better, but at least with these weird times with COVID-19, one could say that is the residence of the president. Mm-hmm might be fitting for him to do it from the White House. Uh, Gettysburg is just gauche and misguided. Do do you think that in floating Gettysburg, it's a way to make the White House seem more palatable? I do. I think it's sort of a a canard. (laughs) Um, You know, he went to Mount Rushmore. He's saying he'd like to see his face on Mount Rushmore. Pennsylvania is the all-important swing state. So if he's getting, give a speech in Pennsylvania. But really, it forces people like me to say, but if, if I have a mm-hmm. Sophie 
choice between Gettysburg or the White House, I would say historians would say do it from the White House. Do not uh, um, denigrate Gettysburg in such a crass fashion. Uh, you know, he also, Gettysburg, of course. Uh... He's, he's floating Gettysburg to make us happy with the White House. That that's that's the theory on CNN. That's an actual expert on CNN talking about the president. Uh, that that oh, it would be so gauche, gauche to go. Here's here's the thing. There is not a place in America that Donald Trump could deliver a speech that the media would be happy about. Remember, they they didn't like the fact that he gave that he announced uh, by riding that escalator inside Trump Tower. They they, they didn't like that. And now there's this, seriously, that the president of the United States wants to go to Gettysburg to give a speech. If it was any other president, they would be okay with it. If it was any other president, they would be fine with it. It's just this president they don't like. He really has broken the media. This is also a, a, a fair indication of the fact that you're not actually going to uh, in the next several months, be able to get a fair airing of what's going on. The, the media, look, look, today they're in full damage control mode over Kamala Harris and the stuff she said about uh, Joe Biden in the past. They've, they've just completely dismissed this stuff. They're apologizing for it. Yes, it is true. Kamala Harris said she didn't believe Joe Biden was a racist, but then she went on to say that even as a non-racist, he collaborated with racists to keep black people down. She actually, she made that case. I played you the audio. You've heard it for yourself. And then he's like, oh, she said he wasn't racist. Never mind that he just collaborated with the, the racist of the Senate to block busing for girls like her. Are we not supposed to believe our eyes? This is gaslighting of the American public for all the attacks they make on Donald Trump for gaslighting people. This, my friends, this is gaslighting of the public by the press these days. You're not going to get a fair hearing from them. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I have not done any any, uh, ads, live reads, uh, promos for sponsors because I want to do them now together. Uh, I would, today is the first anniversary of this program. Uh, Charlie, my producer, Philip, who runs uh, the resurgent for me, uh, Candace, my assistant and I, we all got together in a room about a year and a half, two years ago. And and I said I wanted to do something like this. Charlie and I, uh, so (laughs) Charlie, uh, my producer, and I, uh, he has been with me now for, gosh, um, I've lost track of how long. He he stalked me on the internet. Uh, I joke about it that way, but seriously, uh, I announced in 2011, I was starting radio at WSB in Atlanta and got random, random tweet from, uh, Charlie asked if I needed somebody to make my coffee or something. He had a background in radio, was looking to move to the Southeast. And uh, I, I try seven years, really seven. Oh, I, I thought it was eight. Okay. Seven years. Uh, gosh, uh, we, we've been together longer than most marriages last these days. <laughs> um, but it, it, so he, he came down uh, and went with me to the Republican convention in 2012. I was with CNN and he went with me and really just proved his worth. Uh, it was so indispensable, in fact, uh, that I just demanded that if uh, my radio company at the time, Cox Media Group, was going to rehire me, they were going to have to figure out a way to put him on the payroll. And and they did. They, they found him part-time work. And then as my contract was up for renewal, 
I actually drew a line in the sand. I was not going to renew my contract until they figured out a way to make him full-time. He's just been indispensable uh, to me in radio. And we've been wanting to do something like this. And for years, have all sorts of promises get dangled in radio and stuff and, and never quite happened. We just decided, you know what? We're going to go do something ourselves. And so we have plotted and planned uh, to do this radio program. And it went live a year ago today. And our flagship station was WGAU in Athens. And the next week, uh, WCHM in Clarksville picked us up. Within a month, uh, WRGA in, uh, in Rome picked us up. And now we are all over the state, more than a dozen stations. And we've got a couple more stations coming online within the next month. And we are our affiliate relations. We are our syndicator. We are our ad sales team. Now, early on, there were two uh, two organizations that I had business relationships with as, as clients and as friends, and they stepped up and said, we'll help you get off the ground. And one of those was Dynamic Money. Uh, Chris Burns, who he's actually got to fill in for me on Friday. I got a doctor's appointment that I've got to do in the morning. So Chris will fill in for me. Um, but my wife and I have, have used Dynamic Money as our financial planners. Uh, for a while uh, now, and and they've just been a tremendous help to us. They've helped us restructure debt, uh, pay debt off, refinance our house, get money out to pay off debt. They've really helped us uh, start building savings and and planning more thoughtfully for our kids' college fund, our retirement, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and they stepped up and said we'd love to we'd love to sponsor the show, and they do. And we couldn't do it but for them. And then uh, First Liberty Building and Loan in Noonan, the Frost family I've known for years. They, they've they been committed conservative Christians in politics. They wanted to help me get off the ground. They, they realized I could be a good Christian conservative voice on radio here in Georgia, building a statewide show, and, and they stepped up. Uh, and if you are a business and you need help, uh, go to FirstLibertyGA.com. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. They can help you with PPP. They can navigate you through all these processes. They, If you're an individual, they can't help you. But if you're a business, they want to help you. Uh, and their website is FirstLibertyGA.com. And then in the last two months, I guess it was, uh, True Precision, which has wanted to advertise for a while, and they had to sit back just given the economics of what's going on in the country. They finally stepped forward, and they said, you know what? We want to be a sponsor as well. And it is awesome to have a, a gun parts manufacturer as a sponsor. And not just that, but I have one of their guns. I, I own a True Precision design piece. It's a Glock 43X where they upgraded the slide and the barrel. And I love it when I go to a gun range. People see it and they want to know all about it. It, it looks that good. But not only does it look that good, it is impressively accurate. Uh, I love this gun, uh, and I needed a concealed carry gun because I had a lot of big 9 millimeters. I had a, a Heckler Coke. I've got a CZ. I've got a Glock 19, and I really needed a a small 9 millimeter for concealed carry. And uh, the folks at True Precision, I went through them, and we designed it together, and it was it's a gorgeous. It really is a gorgeous gun. Uh, and so True Precision, true-precision.com is their website. And True Precision step forward. And if you want a good-looking gun that's a work of art and also deadly accurate, true-precision.com is where you want to go. I couldn't have gotten the show off the ground with them without them. Uh, you know, and then, of course, there there is the, the genuinely indispensable person who you never hear from, uh, and that is Jim, who runs the board for me. Um, I do the show out of my studio in Macon. It is routed through my office in Atlanta. Uh, Jim handles all of that and sends it off via satellite 
to all of the affiliates. You're listening to it now because the show streams from uh, my radio station in Atlanta over to the Georgia News Network, which then transmits it out via satellite or the internet, however they do it, uh, to all the stations that you're listening uh, to it. It is an impressive bit of technological engineering. And occasionally there are hiccups in the way, uh, just given the way the internet and, and uh, satellites work these days and so many people not around to maintain them. But we've done this for a year. I have made exactly zero dollars. I am the worst businessman on planet Earth. Uh, I, I The money that we get from the sponsors, uh, from True Precision, from First Liberty, from Dynamic Money, they help pay Philip and Jim and Charlie and guest hosts and the satellite costs and everything else that goes into producing a radio show. I haven't made a penny off the show. I actually, my evening show on WSP in Atlanta, that, that is my, my sole income these days. Uh, now that I don't have a TV contract anymore. And you know what? I would do this show for the rest of my life for free because I love it. Now, I, I actually hope to get fabulously wealthy enough to have a NetJet subscription and a beach house, uh, but uh, that's not happening yet. And, and one day, I, I hope to grow our sponsors and our advertisers to, to have enough to fill the show and to expand uh, beyond the state of Georgia. But that's not where we are right now. When Charlie and I sat down and started mapping this up, we knew Georgia is going to be a swing state in 2020. Like it or not, Georgia is a swing state. And the Democrats are going to pour money into the state. And increasingly, local media outlets have closed up shop around the state. There just aren't a ton of local media outlets in the state of Georgia that have full-time staff and newsrooms anymore. And it becomes increasingly hard for Republicans in the state and conservatives in the state to connect with conservative audiences in the state without having to go through media like uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting that may not necessarily see the world the way conservatives do and, and may be more hostile. I actually went to the governor early on and, and to David Perdue and said, here's what I'm thinking of doing. They were deeply encouraging, uh, helping me get this show off the ground and, and pushing others to be able to be on the show. We've interviewed in the last year, we've interviewed the vice president, multiple governors, multiple senators, attorneys general from various states, uh, Fortune 500 CEOs. We, we've done all of that. And it has been a deeply rewarding experience, and, and I couldn't do it without people like Charlie and Philip and Candace and Jim uh, and all of you and the local affiliates. Now, I, I don't want to make this an entire segment on me and the show, but it, I, I just I want to note we begin our second year today, and a lot of radio programming starts up, gets going, fails to get traction, and goes away very quickly. Or the worst possible thing that can happen, if I'm honest, in my view, is that they get up and running and to sustain themselves, they believe they've got to become increasingly outlandish, but not just increasingly outlandish. They also have to tell you what you want to hear. And that's frankly my concern with conservative media today is they don't want to, just like so much of the left wants to give people on the left a false sense of what's going on, people on the right increasingly do that as well. And I, I think you got to be reality-based and truth-based. So, for example, there's a story this morning at Fox on Kamala Harris. And the headline is uh, vocal left-wing criticism about Kamala Harris. And the premise of the story is to paint you a picture of the left is now breaking up. They're tired of Joe Biden. They don't like Joe Biden. They're amplifying, for example, a criticism from an MSNBC contributor that progressives are not happy with Kamala Harris. Here's this criticism from MSNBC. 
And the fact that she is, you know, capable of actually cracking a smile and making a joke and going on different kinds of radio shows, that's going to be really necessary because young people who may be concerned about her criminal justice record, young people who may look, I, I'm not going to read you the text that I've gotten, young people who may have issues about her why authenticity, won't anyone read me? they're going to get a chance Jason, to know her. <laughs> why won't anyone read me a text? <laughs> I, I, you you really, Senate, you, you, you want to know. Yes, I, I do. It's reporting. I, I, can, I mean, if, I can, I can if tell you, you right have now, reporting... If you have reporting, I'll let you tee it up. Take a second and pull it up from people around the country. Particularly, okay. I'm most interested not in insiders, but in people who say, wait, this pick got my attention. Uh, if you're willing to share, you don't have to share their name, obviously. Use your reporting judgment. What sure. do you got? I've got one of my students right here at Morgan State University. Indifference, since she's a cop, not sure if it's going to flip, if she's going to flip on us when she gets into office. Uh, one of my other students right here, I was more Yang Gang all along, wasn't really that impressed with her, but we need somebody black on the ticket. Another one of my students here, uh, right here, always liked Harris, really excited, but you know, Professor Johnson, I'm an AKA. The, you know, these are all people who are under 25. And that is going to be the difference in this campaign. Joe Biden isn't galvanizing Gen Z. Okay, that is the dumbest piece of commentary I have heard about this race so far. Do you know what? Young people don't vote. Young people are not going to decide this election. Young people never decide elections. If you're on television telling everyone that the difference is going to be made among the 18 to 25 set, you're an idiot who shouldn't be taken seriously. And I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care whether you're black, white, progressive, conservative. You're an idiot if you think that young people, 18 to 25, college-age kids are going to shape this election. They're not. They never have. They never will. They do not vote. They forget about it because they're out partying and having a good time, and they don't go show up. Every campaign that has ever been built on the youth vote turning out to push people over the finish line has been a losing campaign because young people don't actually make the difference in an election. But yet this is the sort of anal analysis that gets played up now on the right. Say, oh, 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 nobody's excited about Kamala Harris on the left. You've got to be reality based. You've got to be able to live in the real world. One of my chief criticisms of so much of the media is that uh, they live in New York and Washington. They live in bubbles. They get surrounded by comfort, safety, and security. Listen, I, I, this is, again, this is the first anniversary of the show. Not making any money from the show. Everything gets plowed back into the show to grow the show. One day, I hope to have a NetJet subscription, and I would love to have a, a house at Lake Burton and a house in Hilton Head. Houses that I can take my friends and family, that I can say to, to friends of mine who need a break, you know what, go stay at my house. Be generous with all the blessings. But I live in Macon, Georgia. I, I don't plan on moving out of Macon, Georgia. I have friends who would love for me to li live in Atlanta or, or up in Cherokee counties. I live in Macon. Our kids go to school in Macon. Maybe one day I'll, I'll, we'll retire somewhere. I would love to have land just north of the city out in Monroe County, God's country, uh, better taxes, more competent government, uh, more land, no neighbors. I, I'd love to do that. But go to the grocery store. Go, go to kids' school, it, it, be able to relate to the real world in ways that a lot of people who get up in New York and Washington or e, e, people on talk radio who get fabulously wealthy, they, they tend to lose touch with society. They tend to think that the people they're texting with on a regular basis are society when, when really it's not. There, there are more people in a bubble. You've got to start your analysis of what's going on in the world with the actual world, not the world as you perceive it, but the world as it is. And that analysis that you just heard is somebody in a bubble. 
And on the right, you're going to hear idiots like that be taken seriously. And you're going to hear all sorts of uh, stories about how Kamala Harris, she's breaking up the left wing coalition. They don't really like her. No, Joe Biden could nominate a turd sandwich to be his vice presidential nominee. And they will relish eating up that sandwich and licking their lips afterwards and saying that was the most delicious sandwich I've ever had. Why? Because they hate Donald Trump that much. And if your presuppositional view is that that's not the case, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. That is not the way the real world is. And that was one of my my whole issues with wanting to start the show. I am a Christian. I am a conservative. I was an elected Republican. I was a lawyer. I ran people for office. I know how to run campaigns. And so much of what we're getting more and more is just people telling you what you want to hear and from people who really don't have a depth of experience out there. And it was a deep frustration and I'm just, I'm delighted. We've been at this for a year now. We continue to grow. We're, we're picking up more stations and, and love it or hate it. Y'all, I, I will make this commitment to you on the first day of the second year of this program. I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I'm here to tell you what, as best I can figure it out, what the truth is of a situation and tell you what I think about it. And my perspective is I believe there's a heaven and a hell. I believe there's a second coming. I believe I'm on the winning team, and I believe the world is out to get people on that team right now, even though they're going to lose. And that's how it shapes my worldview, my analysis, my opinion of how I see the world, and that puts me squarely on the side of the right. But also, it actually does, contrary to what people like Barack Obama would tell you, puts me on the right side of history because I've read the back of the book, and I know how it ends. Today, we should have a celebratory mood here being the one-year anniversary. You know, Abby, uh, the program director at WGAU, our flagship station, the first station we were on, She, it's the, the one-year anniversary is the paper anniversary. So she sent me a roll of toilet paper that has happy anniversary stamped on it. I, I appreciate that to, to no end. <laughs> it, it should be a, 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 I'm trying not to cry. I got tickets to the Masters for the first time. My, my buddy, Justin, his family, they've been longtime patrons, and he he promised me a ticket for the Thursday at the Masters, and now they're not going to allow people to come to the Masters. You know, I want to get on the radio over in Athens, or not in Athens, in Augusta. Uh, they they got a radio station over there, and but Glenn Beck is on 9 to noon on their station, and, and he's been doing well, so they won't put me on, but I want to be on in Athens so I can cry on the radio and and maybe guilt them into letting me actually come be like the sole spectator of the masters and and then go by rec tech and and see the the company that made my fabulous smoker. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be upset. Okay. We, we, we got other news. Y'all I realized that every station we're on is in Georgia, but you need to hear the story. Anyway, Fairfax County, Virginia, Fairfax County, Virginia, uh, is delaying school and parents in Fairfax County, Virginia have decided to organize what they're calling pods. They're getting students together. Families are pooling their money to hire tutors to teach the kids because the teachers don't want to go to work. And the families aren't aren't opening, or the schools aren't opening, and so the families are having to step up and hire tutors to teach the kids in groups. And the Fairfax County school system has released a statement saying, if they could, they would ban this. 
And since they can't ban it, they just want people to be advised that this will put some kids at a competitive advantage over other kids. Uh, Mike Gonzalez, who is up there, he works for the Heritage Foundation. He actually, he he put this, let, let me read you the statement from the Fairfax County Public Schools. This is their direct quote. We can't control these private tutoring groups. We do have concerns that they may widen the gap in educational access and equity, not equality, but in equity. That is, that's actually what's going on. This, this is the, the headline from the Communications and Community Relations Division of the Fairfax County Public Schools. Message to parents on tutoring pods. Around, across the country, many parents are joining together to engage private tutors who are often school teachers to provide tutoring or home instruction for small groups of children. While there is no systemic way to track these private efforts, it's clear that a number of pandemic pods or tutoring pods are being established in Fairfax County. We are aware of these tutoring pods as well as the accompanying community concerns. To be clear, these educational efforts are not supported by or controlled by the school system for several private for several reasons. They're purely private initiatives. Under the terms of their contracts, our teachers are allowed to provide tutoring services for reimbursement if they meet certain conditions. While we can't control these private tutoring groups, we have concerns that they may widen the gap in educational access and equity for all students. Many parents cannot afford private instruction. Many working families can't provide transportation to and from a tutoring pod, even if they could afford to pay the services. Uh, and they have received requests from certain families to allow this tutoring to happen at schools, and they refuse. They're not going to do it. Why not just open the schools? Give it your best shot. Monitor the kids. Make them wear masks. Make them wash their hands. Limit classroom or lunchroom time. Make them go outside and teach the kids if they're that concerned, as opposed to saying don't do this because some kids won't be able to do it. That's ridiculous. Now that's a parking spot. Introducing the I may have underestimated the size of my car policy with accident forgiveness from American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote. Find an agent. Visit AmFam.com. Optional policy features not included in base policies. Review policy for coverages and exclusions. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.